just want to start right now with a word of prayer. Our God, you are holy. You are higher than anything we could even dream of. And we just ask right now that your spirit would come and instruct us of where we need to to walk closer and to be more like you and less like ourselves. We thank you for being part of uh, this body of believers this morning and uh, ask for your help in moving forward. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're really anxious to have communion, fear not, that is coming, so hope we're going to be doing that uh, towards the end of our teaching time today. Uh, if you are using a pew Bible, it's page number uh, 1008. And if you're visiting, uh, my name is Paul, I'm a minister at this church, and we're very glad that you're here, and that you're, uh, or that you're tuning in. But today in our uh, time of teaching, I feel compelled to just say a few things about the state of our church right now. Uh, and if, you're, if you are visiting or if you're checking us out online for the first time, I, I don't mean to scare you off. It just, uh, I feel like this is just an acknowledgement of reality. Maybe it was just my own coping mechanism, uh, but I feel like the last few weeks, like the last month or so on Sunday mornings, we've just been kind of pretending like nothing's happened. And so here's where we're at. Uh, about a month ago, a man who most, if not all of us, loved very dearly, made the decision to resign his position as senior minister at this church. And uh, it was unexpected. It was sudden. It has been a shock to our system. And in the conversations that I've been having with uh, church members, here's the best I could think of to explain it. Uh, It's kind of like parents trying to talk to a child about why mom and dad are getting divorced. Uh, You know, just uh, why is this happening? You know, was this something I did? what can I do to fix it? And I'm here to tell you that any and all of the feelings that you might have right now are valid. Uh, it's okay to mourn. It's okay to be a little angry. It's, it's okay to be concerned. and It's okay to have questions. Uh, that this is something that we are processing, and it, processing it doesn't look the same for all of us. And it's going to take some time. Uh, but let's just be honest. Let's, let's stop doing all of the churchy things, which really turns into lying to each other, that we are in a, we're in a rough spot right now, and, that's, uh, and that happens. But when I think of this, as I've been thinking through this, I, a line that's been coming to me, uh, a friend of mine who's also in ministry <laughs> shared this with me, uh, saying that, I think it was on the day he was ordained, his dad came up to him after the ordination ceremony he says, yes, I'm going to give my life to the ministry. I'm going to be a minister here. And, uh, and the guy said, you know what, son? You're going to put your blood, sweat, and tears, and you're going to, to work so hard for the church. And then one day you're going to, you're going to retire. And you know what they're going to do the, the first Sunday after you're gone? They're going to have church. And I don't say that to be dismissive of what Jordan and his family have meant to this church over the past seven years. I say to point to this eternal truth. We serve a God who is worthy of worship. The events of the past six weeks, and heck, the events of the past eight months have not changed that fact. 
So while we figure out as a church whether we are moving forward or if we are standing still, we are following the direction of our king and nobody else. We don't know all the answers, but we serve the one who does. And with all these thoughts floating around my mind, I also came to this truth. Sometimes loving God hurts. And I don't know if that's a surprise, if it's just struck me in a new way, because Jesus never hid the ball from us on this. He said, if we want to come after him, we need to take up our cross and die. And that is not natural. In fact, it goes against every one of our baser instincts. But this is the only way to worship our God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. And if we believe what we profess to believe, then we believe that God not only cares about us, but he wants to be involved in our lives. And this is a very hard thing for non-believers to actually come into the faith because if you're going to say that there is a being so powerful out there that it can speak the world into existence, to speak the universe into existence, then why would something that large also have concern for beings that are as insignificant as we are? And I don't want you to say, when I say that you're insignificant, I don't want you to take that personally. I'm trying to point out something, that atheists, if, if you actually follow through in some of their arguments against the existence of God, you, if you follow them to their logical con- conclusions, then we are just some grand cosmic accident. We are meat popsicles. That, that why, why should we matter? And even atheists rarely act like that's true. But admitting to the existence of a power that is as big as our God means that we have to surrender control in our lives. And this is a hard thing. Uh, It's really hard for us. And I shared this in our midweek Bible study, that it humors me how obsessed we are with control. We wrestle with each other. We backstab each other. We verbally assault each other to always keep that upper hand of control. And when the fact of the matter is, we have never been in control. We never will be in control. Because this is the truth. We belong to God. This world belongs to God. There is not a thing that has been made that was not made by him. He holds it all together. And existence would cease to be without him. We believe in a God that is absolutely in control at every moment. And with that being said... We're going to talk about how we can cling to that belief of God's control when times are tough. What does it mean to trust in God when life isn't going my way? When a loved one gets sick, or we lose a job, or when friends betray us, because here's the thing, if we believe God is in control, God's control is not conditional. It doesn't depend on circumstances. And also, God's control is not occasional. He has always been and will always be utterly in control. And we cling to this truth because if that's not the case, our faith is meaningless. And in my own wrestling match I've been having with God, I came across this teaching and I think it works for our church's unique situation that we find ourselves in. And I would never have thought to dig into this text without having and wrestling with some of these thoughts myself. But I want to start by reading from Hebrews chapter 12 and starting in the first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And now, notice here, when the, Paul uses this metaphor a few times about running a race, and many of you, again, when I, you know I'm a runner, and uh, they, you can't help but tell me how many things you'd rather do in this life than run, but here's the thing, is that we are serving God, and we're talking about God's control, and he's the one who sets the race before us. And so, if we're going to run that race well, it means that we're going to have to let go of some things that we think that we actually need, but they're really holding us back. Continuing on, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled. And this passage is all about enduring, and I think that's why it speaks to me. Because we are told several times throughout the Bible to expect the world to give us trouble. Because we are called to be different, not of this world. And therefore, the world, when they see us, they should not know what to do with us. They will do what all humans do when they encounter something that is outside of their control. They attack. So in this walk with Christ, we should expect hardship. And there's something about God's creation that nothing grows, nothing becomes different without being stressed. When I ran my my first marathon, I mean, I'm not going to get gross here, but my body literally started breaking down, not only during the training, but during the race itself. But I persevered and I finished against every instinct that I had. And through more training, the second time I went to run a marathon, I I improved dramatically. And now I'm at the point where running a race at that distance no longer frightens me. But my body had to be broken down, stressed, and stretched to a point where I'd never been before. Earlier this year, we, uh, when, when everything, we were at home and we did a little at-home science experiment, uh, we got some uh, caterpillars and a butterfly house, and they stress to you, after, when they go into their cocoons, or they call them pupas, I forget what they call them, but when they go into their cocoons, uh, the process of breaking out of that cocoon, do not try to help them, because that process, 
uh, strengthens and develops the muscles that they are going to need to be able to fly. So that when butterflies break out of the cocoon, that's where they can fulfill their role in nature. You cannot help them. So if we accept that this situation is biologically true, then why are we surprised that this is also spiritually true? If you believe that suffering and hardships are a sign that God doesn't like you, then you have not understood the teaching of the Bible. Because suffering is the environment that will cause you to grow beyond the place where you are currently at in your walk with God. And we say that stress is bad and it's something that should be avoided at all costs. No, stress is natural. And I'm perplexed by Christians who take great comfort in a God who is going to overcome the powers of an eventual and an eternal hell, but they offer little hope to the people who are going through a hell of their own right now. We need to be the harbingers of real-life hope that, yes, one day God will make everything right. He will wipe away all the tears of his people. But we also have a God who is here right now in the midst of your suffering. Biblically speaking, God never says that you will not suffer. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, if you're going to come after me, expect trouble. And he tells us to endure it, to fight through it. And he promises that by his power, you will find a way through. It may not be on the time frame that you had in mind, but he will carry you through if you let him. So learn from your suffering. But we live in a culture that says, if you're suffering, that means there's no God. So our prayer should never be that God would not allow us to suffer. Well, you can pray that. I just don't expect that you would get the answer that you're hoping for. But I might suggest that our prayer instead should be that God teach us how to suffer well because it's going to happen. And I think that there's a few things that we can glean from this text that I read that's going, that are going to encourage us. And I want to be clear that this is not about training ourselves in the art of suffering. I hope that none of us ever gets really good at suffering. My hope is that we are going to lean into a God who can show us a way through the suffering. Because if we learn to suffer well, we can see in this text the truth that we can grow spiritually during this time. Suffering will produce the discipline of God, and if we can endure it, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. And if you're with us a couple of weeks ago, that's what our God demands. Our master expects a harvest of fruit from his disciples. But a fruitful life cannot happen without his help. So we need to listen to our master. When he tells us that we need to run, we run. When he, he tells us that we need to stop doing something that's killing us spiritually, we need to stop. We need to let the God who is actually in control take the wheel and guide us to where we need to be. The hope that we are offered in Scripture is not that suffering is not going to happen. It's that God will take our moments of suffering and make us better because of it. The world will tell us that if we're suffering that our lives are worse and God says, no, trust me, I'm actually using this to make you better. Life is full of ebbs and flows and if we trust that God is in control, then not only do we praise him when life is going well, we also surrender to him in those moments where every day he's making us better and stronger so that we can stand up stronger and longer under the spiritual pressure that the world is going to put us through and we praise him all the same. Because your faith is a muscle and like any other muscle, If it is not stretched, strengthened, it's going to atrophy, and it will become useless. I love this line from Timothy Keller. It says, 
when it doesn't seem like there's an order to your life, it doesn't mean that there's no order to your life. It's just not your order. And doesn't that prove to be true? God, why isn't my job or my marriage or my family life, why isn't it going perfectly? And God is saying to us, I don't need your job to go perfectly. I need to train you. I need to put you into a difficult circumstance and difficult environments and watch you endure. And before I go further, I want to clarify something theologically. I don't believe that God causes or brings every difficulty into our lives. I don't see in Scripture where God can be blamed for every bad thing, nor will he take credit for every good thing. God is the cosmic allower. I mean, it's the consequence of giving us free will. Our sinful, fallen nature, our rebellion is going to produce suffering and hardships for people. And while the redeemed of the Lord, we are forgiven for our sins, we aren't free from the consequences of them. So in a sinful world that is always going to be full of brokenness, and that brokenness is going to produce suffering, God won't create every difficulty that you face, but he can make every difficulty useful for your walk with him. And some of the difficulties that we face, we have completely earned with our own rebellion. But our God, who is full of grace and mercy, is still there for us. And sometimes suffering and difficulty come to us when we haven't earned them. And he's there in that circumstance too. He stays with us, training us to be stronger and to endure longer. And this text also or characterizes God as a loving father, that there is a loving purpose to our suffering. In verse 9 it says, we have had earthly fathers, let's see here, oh, there it is, okay. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to, best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. And it's, it is important for us to remember that if we pr- profess to believe in a good and loving God who wants the best for us, if that God allows us to suffer, it's not that he wills suffering for us, it's that his goodness is so overwhelming that he can even turn something like suffering into an instrument that's going to produce holiness in our lives. Because God is not your lucky charm. He's not here to make your life so comfortable that you can't help but love him. If the measure of your God is how great your individual life is, then your God is too small to deal with something as large as sin. Because a God that is measured by our own satisfaction is a God that will change with the shifting sands of our culture. And that is not who he is. I heard a preacher say once, and and I I know he had to have stolen it from somebody else, but that's what we do. We steal from each other. It's fine. Uh, But I love the truth of this spirit, uh, of this statement, that if God's purpose is to make you happy, entertained, and comfortable, then God owes Jesus an apology. Because Jesus lived the life of an Old Testament prophet. He came and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. He went into audiences in the midst of environments he knew it would be a threat to them. And he went from town to town completely dependent on the generosity of others. They had to shelter him and he owned nothing but the clothes on his back. And when he went to the cross, they took those away from him too. And despite all that Jesus experienced, he lived a life of holy perfection. And in his last moments, he asked his father to forgive the people who were killing him. And that is who we are called to imitate. So what's the role of a parent? 
Uh, The author of Hebrews uses this image of a father, and we call our God a good father. So what does that look like for us? When I think of my role as a father, and and I think of Carrie's role as a mom in in our household, and I think of my boys, and this is how I would characterize children. Now, I have three boys I, don't, I have no idea what it's like to raise girls, so my perception may be skewed by this, but I realized when I became a father, my life's mission became to stop these little suicide machines from their goal of dying at a very young age. Any testimony here, parents, all right? I mean, for the love, my, my boys have rolled off the bed, they have jumped off the backs of chairs and cracked their teeth on a, the hearth of a fireplace, hung upside down from a beam 15 feet in the air with no safety net beneath them. And if you see my youngest boy around here right now, he has a giant orange arm because we thought it'd be a great idea to get a trampoline. Need I say more? <sighs> I've heard it theorized that there is not a more vulnerable or useless creature uh, in the animal kingdom than a human baby. Babies are completely and utterly incapable of caring for themselves. And that's why God makes them so cute. Because, I mean, a giraffe is born and it's up and walking inside of a couple of minutes. But a human baby is basically a lump that does nothing but eat, cry, and poop for about a year. And yet the power of parenting, the bond is so strong that for many of us, we get one miserable year of no sleep and we sign up for a second tour. But this fascinates me that in the animal kingdom, parenting is only necessary for an incredibly short time. And when I think about it, I'm 37 years old, and I still need parenting sometimes. I still go to my mom and dad for wisdom. And I've leaned on several of you in this church as surrogate parents of of such up here in Michigan. Now, Carrie and I are both middle children, and so I think we have a particular fondness for Connor, who's our middle child. And and I'll tell you right now, Connor has one of the biggest hearts I've ever seen in a kid. I mean, COVID has been specifically devastating for Connor because he's a hugger. And I've never before, this is the first for me, I've never before seen a kid who was anxious to go and hug his school principal because hugging his teachers just wasn't enough. And when we were first shut down back in March, you know, Connor, he gave, he woke up and he comes in, he gives Carrie a hug. And about five minutes later, he comes back and he gives her another hug. And he said, I don't know why. I just need a lot of hugs today. And like, oh, buddy, I'm going to hug him as long as he's going to let me. He's really good at it. But I've often looked at him and, and had this thought, this world is going to eat him alive. And I'm just trying to stop that from happening. I mean, I, he's in fifth grade. Junior high is right around the corner, and that's when the innocence of childhood starts to fade, and cliques form, and kids get nastier, and my dear, sweet Connor, his big heart is going to be exposed to this harsh truth, that life is not always full of fun and friendship. So what's my job as a parent? It's to discipline him. And that doesn't mean sending him to his room with no supper for no reason, just to show him that, hey, life's, life's tough, deal with it. It means to prepare him for what's to come. It's about controlling the amount of discomfort that he experiences. So that when life punches him in the face, as it does to all of us at some point, he can stand up to the challenge. And I think that we all intellectually understand this when it comes to parenting, but for some reason, when it comes to our relationship with God, If it's not food, parties, and PlayStation all the time, we think that somehow God doesn't love us. And we need to remember the words of verse 5. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary 
when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises the one whom he receives. We need to remember that our good God never changes, even when his answer to our prayers is no. Sometimes as a father, I have to let my boys suffer the natural consequence of their poor choices. And I'm such a softy, that kills me. Because my instinct is to protect them. I don't want them to know an ounce of pain. But even if it's from themselves, I want to protect them. But they're coming into a time in their lives when they believe that they're going to start thinking that they know better than me and I need to dissuade them of this notion. Sometimes God allows suffering in our lives to reveal our own character flaws. And sometimes suffering is a result of those flaws. Sometimes it just reveals them. And just one example of this from my own life that I often get too task-oriented in things. And they aren't nearly as important as I want to think that they are. And and this has caused me to miss out on moments with my wife and my kids that truly mattered. And it was a hard and sobering lesson to learn that there's no such thing as wasting time when it comes to soaking up these moments of life with them. When we were shut down in our homes earlier this year, I got to see sides of my boys that were always there. Some of them frightened me, (laughs) but... Plenty made me proud, but I had filled my life with so much work that I was missing out on stuff that I actually cared about more. John Newton, who is a former slave trader, and he wrote our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, he has this quote, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Do we hear this? God will allow you to go through everything that is necessary for you to become the person he created you to be. And if you think God isn't letting you have something that you actually need, you're wrong. Because God will never hold back something that you do need. Now, one of the least, the very least comforting books in the Bible is the book of Job. All right. Uh, Job seems to be caught in the middle of some cosmic bet between God and Satan through no fault of his own. Job was an incredibly prosperous follower of God, and God allows allows Job to lose everything. And I mean everything. His possessions, his treasures, his children, and his health. The only thing he gets to keep are his wife and his friends. And if you read the book, they ain't exactly a ray of sunshine in his life. And Job raises his eyes to the heaven and asks God a question that seems entirely reasonable. Why? Why are you letting this happen to me? My life is in tatters, in shambles, and I've done nothing to deserve this. And Job levels dozens of questions, even accusations against God. And here's what will drive you insane. God answers none of them. God's like, that's a cute question, Job. By the way, tell me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set this world into motion with its weather patterns of rain so that everything can run in perfect sync and harmony? Were you there? Job hangs his head and says, no, I wasn't. And God says, when you can answer my questions, then I will answer your questions. And Job repents, and at the end of the book, Job busts out into praise and worship and admits that the suffering of God, the suffering that God allowed him to go through, revealed the goodness of God, not the cruelty of God. Because God never once abandoned Job. The Lord will give, the Lord will take away. And through it all, 
He never leaves us. He will redeem all of his people. God will heal all of his people. Some of us on this side of death, all of us on the other side. He will wipe away all of the tears, all of the pain, all of the scars that the world will inflict on us. He will deal with it all. We are never once promised an easy life in the scriptures. We are called to be imitators of Jesus Christ, who on the night he was betrayed, he fell on his face before his father, sweat and blood pouring from his faith, from his face, and he asked his dad, is there any other way? Please, please let this cup of suffering pass me by. I don't want to do this. And me being as terrible of a person as a father as I often feel that I am, I can't even imagine the fortitude of God to look down at his son and say, no. Son, I need you to do this. I need you to let them torture and kill you. I'm going to let you suffer so that I can free each and every one of these people. And Jesus said what? Not as I will, but as you will. In other words, yes, sir. And Jesus endured one of the most brutal forms of death that our world has ever concocted. In the moment before he died, he cried out to his father, Into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's what it looks like to commit yourself to God. Into your hands, God, I commit my spirit, my life, my everything. Right now, we're just going to take a moment to reflect on that. We're going to share in a time of the Lord's Lord's suffering, but Lord's Supper, we call it, right now. And I want that to be our guiding thought. Let's focus on the one who showed us what a committed life to God really looks like. Go ahead and take a communion.